0: We gave pastor off uh this week uh, just to give him some rest. He's been preaching hard on sin and our culture and uh so we gave him a, a week off so he could recoup. It's hard when you preach against sin and the devil's after you the whole time. So uh we're glad that he could have a little bit of time off and like I always say we'll, we'll have a bowl of cereal this morning instead of steak and eggs. Okay? Um, Genesis, uh, excuse me, he- Hebrews chapter 6, <clears throat> and we're going to start reading in verse 13, just before we pray. We're going to be also in Genesis chapter 15 as well, in just a little bit, <clears throat> but those are the two passages we'll be going back and forth uh, this morning, beginning in verse 13. Oh, excuse me, um, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 15, but keep your finger in Hebrews chapter 6. <clears throat> we'll begin reading in verse um, 6 uh, of chapter, chapter 15. Well, to tell you the truth, I'm having problems with my little iPad this morning. And um, it's what you get for relying on electronics, right? We'll begin reading in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying... Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. I love the way the old King James puts it. Your exceeding great reward. Speaking of himself. Abram said, O oh Lord, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house would be my heir. Then behold the word of the Lord came to him saying this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, "Now, look toward heavens, the heavens and count the stars. If you're able to count them." And he said to him, "So shall your descendants be." Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness let's bow for a word of prayer our father we do come this morning seeking your help lord we need you i need you i pray that the spirit of god would come and bring his word to our hearts lord my words mean nothing but your word is everything and so we ask the lord and the holy spirit would come and bring his word to our hearts we pray in jesus name amen In Genesis 15, Abram made a complaint before God concerning the childlessness in which he and his wife Sarah continued in. They were anxious. They were disappointed. Life was getting on. And we would imagine that this probably became a matter of trouble in their home. Um, There was probably argument over this from time to time. We know for sure that Sarah was frustrated and weary over her barrenness. As you read the story, this was a touchy subject, as we can imagine, in the home. Abraham may have not always uh, had a happy home. There was still no heir, no son, as God had promised, and waiting is always a difficult task. I think that's one of the most difficult tasks we have in life is waiting, especially at the DMV. But waiting is a hard task, and waiting upon the Lord. And so in chapter 15, Abram asked God about this steward of his, Eleazar of Damascus, making the point that even one who was born in his household could be considered an heir of the family, but this is not what God wanted. And he says in verse 4, Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. Then God goes on to promise Abraham that he would be the father of so many people that they could not be numbered. It's like he's promising me a son. Now he's upping the anti for lack of a better term sorry for that but the lord even comes forth with even more uh, if you will in human terms i speak as a man like paul says crazy idea he says this there's going to be so many people that you can't even number them a number so vast that god uses the illustration of the night sky as a visual that Abraham could actually see and understand the magnitude of the promise. So he brought Abraham outside and promised him in verse 5, let's read, Look now toward heaven and count the stars, if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. In that moment, look at what transpired in Abram's heart and mind, verse 6. And he believed in the Lord. And he reckoned it, or accounted it to him, for righteousness. Abraham believed God, and because of his belief, God made him righteous. God considered Abraham a righteous man. In Romans chapter four, explains that counting as it says that he's counted him as justified, as the picture of Jesus Christ, justifying his people. Fast forward now a few decades and turn to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, we'll just read a few verses there. In this passage, Yahweh restates the same promise to Abraham in verses 15 through 18 in Genesis 22, where Abraham believed God so completely that he was willing to sacrifice his only son that God had just given him, Isaac. Isaac. Look at verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you. And I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall, be, shall possess the gate of his, their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God restated his promise to Abraham, this time adding another illustration so that Abraham, Abraham could see again the magnitude of this promise. God said, And as the sand which is on the seashore... Here, God is, <clears throat> God's promise to Abraham, to Father Abraham, the promise of many people. This promise was the Old Testament example and illustration, as the writer of Hebrew calls it, the pattern of the promise to all of God's people made in Christ by his sacrifice and atonement on our behalf. And the writer of Hebrews gives us a view of the promise that is this covenant made by God to all his people. Abraham's faith being that example by which we follow in believing God and in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the covenant of God. And this morning, I want to, I guess if you would title this message, it'll be Our Covenant Keeping God. God kept his covenant with Abraham. God kept that covenant that he had promised for all those years to Abraham and to Sarah that they would have a son. And he began to build his home and build his people. God kept his promise. As I have been preparing through the last couple of weeks for this message, it occurred to me that this Sunday would be Father's Day. But I did not make it my purpose to make this a Father's Day message. But if there's a Father's Day message this morning in this, it's this. As fathers, we are called to many duties that lay upon us in our roles as fathers or as grandfathers now, some of us, that we have a task to do. And the, the task that comes to the forefront in all of those duties as fathers is that we are called to train and teach our children. This is the obvious role of any father. And in teaching them, the scriptures rise to the top of the list, as in the teaching of our children, and the duty of teaching our children, sound doctrine. Yes, we want to teach them biblical principle. We want to teach them a good work ethic. Teach teach them how to treat children, how to have character. All of those things. But I think paramount in that duty is to teach our children sound doctrine. And I hope that's what we do today as we go to God's Word. Fathers, a good Father's Day message. Teach your children good, sound doctrine. To understand the covenant and the doctrine surrounding it is a lifetime endeavor. There's no possible way to exhaust it, but it should be our ambition to, just, to do just that, to exhaust it as much as we can, to exhaust its depth. <clears throat> the covenant of God is at the crux, the crucible of our faith. That is, the faith as that which is found in the scriptures. Jude, in his little epistle, says this, "...the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints." That faith, the sum of all faith and practice, the truth of our God and Savior unfolded in the pages of the Bible and ends and begins and ends with the covenant of God and begins and ends with that covenant keeping God. And so this morning, I want you to listen, first of all, to what our confession states about the covenant. Okay, this is very important. This whole sentence here, this whole statement, is what we'll be talking about through the scriptures. This is what the confession says, the distance about the covenant of God. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their creator, they could never, never have any fruition or fulfillment of him. ...as their blessedness and their reward... ...except by some voluntary condescension on God's part... ...which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. No way any of us... ...none of us... ...could in our reasoning... Even in our obedience, any kind of act that we could do, any word we could say, any thought that we could have, could ever breach the distance between God and his creation, except by way of his covenant, his voluntary covenant to us. The distance between creator and creature is so vast, there's no closing of that distance without God himself moving to condescend, to close that impossible gap. His act of love for his son, in his act of love for his son, he created a contract or as scripture says, a promise, a covenant. Two alienated parties, God Almighty, God the Father, and man the creature are brought together. As Spurgeon said, quote, by a covenant initiated by grace and enforced by love, end quote. Let's go to the great passage now in Hebrews chapter 6 where this covenant that God gave to Abraham is laid out for us. <clears throat> and it's explained very well. Hebrews chapter 6, verse, we'll begin in verse 13. For... God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, And one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. And Melchizedek speaks of an eternal priesthood. that eternal priesthood that Jesus Christ would hold. One of the first aspects of this covenant we see is what our confession states. God, number one, God is the initiator of that promise or of that covenant. Look what it says in verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, this was God's plan. This was God's design. God is the creator, the author, the beginner. He is the beginner or designer of all things. And the covenant was conceived in his great mind. Yahweh, the the great I am of Exodus chapter 3, is the great cause of all things. Everything else is the effect of that cause. The statement in our confession that I read earlier explains to us what the, the numerous proof texts in the scriptures tell us plainly. That the covenant is all about the transcendent God condescending to his creation. To bring them back into a right relationship with Him. Turn to Psalm 113, if you will quickly. Psalm 113, great passage on the Lord. Verse 5 says, we'll read through verse 8 Who is like the Lord our God, who is enthroned on high, who humbles Himself? To behold the things that are in heaven and in earth. He humbles himself. That's condescension. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and with the princes of his people. God humbles himself to condescend to bring a covenant. Turn to Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to turn to a few passages here. Isaiah chapter 40, we'll start reading in verse 13. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding? Who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, of course those questions are rhetorical. Nobody has, of course. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on a scale. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. What the prophet is trying to get across to these people here is that God is a being of such magnitude and of such incomprehension that all of these things, as we see great nations, we think the nations are so mighty and so great. I mean, uh, for years as a, as a lad, I always thought that the United States was the best nation, and it was, of course. I always thought the United States was always the best, the biggest, and the most powerful. And I remember as a little boy studying history, and the nations were a mighty thing to me. History was a great teacher for me, and I loved history. I still do, but God calls them like a, a little dust on the scale. We don't bother with the dust on the scale, right? We put the weights on it to get a just and right measurement, but the nations are not even measurable compared to God. Like dust, like a drop in the bucket. It says here, if you're to line up all the trees that were in Lebanon and all of the animals from that vast forest, they aren't enough. They're insufficient to sacrifice in worship to this God. The Almighty is beyond our comprehension, yet the psalmist says that God humbles himself to look over these things in heaven and in earth. We're reading Divine Providence by Stephen Sharnock in our men's prayer meeting on Saturday mornings. And yesterday was just uh, such a blessed time as we read about these, uh, these things of the Lord and his providence. <clears throat> all of, He's over all of creation. And we talked about God's pleasure in directing even the smallest insect's mind and instinct to do exactly what God has designed it to do and fulfill its little purpose in this vast universe. God, in his providence, directs them. In his design, gives them fulfillment of that direction, the tiniest little bug, for his glory, and for his will to be done. God, is uncomprehens- incomprehensible. Turn to Acts chapter 17. <clears throat> Dr. Luke makes a statement that encom- encompasses what Isaiah is saying, but he, he says it in a very simple and uh, straightforward way. Actually, Luke is quoting Paul. Paul is speaking here to the Greeks in chapter 17. Near the great Parthenon in Athens, Paul gives a description of the unknown God in verse 21. Let's begin reading. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens... I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth does not dwell in temples made with hands nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. How many of you have ever been to Athens to see the Parthenon? Nobody? Well we've seen it in pictures right? That thing's massive and it's in ruins. Can you imagine the beauty of that temple and And the uh, majesty of it, it was a massive thing. It was a creation that man thought was such a great thing that he would give to his God. Paul tells him here plainly, that unknown God is more important than all of these other gods. He is the one that gives life and breath and all things to the world in heaven and in earth. But he doesn't dwell in temples made with the uh, uh, the hands of men. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all people life and breath and all things. They worship an unknown God ignorantly, because the distance between the Creator and the creature is so vast, there is no closing of that distance, even with the massive Parthenon that they have built. There was no closing of that gap. God had to voluntarily bring himself down so that we might have peace with him and mercy from him. For when God, going back to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 13 says, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and will surely multiply you. Thank the Lord that he sought Abraham out. He didn't leave it up to Abraham to seek God out. Thank the Lord that he pursues his people. He comes after us. That is a blessing, folks. I hope you understand and can comprehend. We can never come to the end of ourselves unless the Holy Spirit comes and opens our eyes in regeneration to give us faith and repentance. God's commitment or oath was to himself. It said there in the last part of that, in the first part of that verse 13. He could swear by no greater. God made that covenant to Abraham, so he swore by himself. Let's go back and look at that passage in chapter 15 of Genesis. Genesis chapter 15, we'll take up again in verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and three-year-old ram, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought all these to him and cut them in two. And laid each half opposite to the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abraham had to drive them away. Now when the sun was going down, this is where God makes his covenant. The sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. So first of all, we know Abraham's out of it. He's gone. He's already asleep. God puts him into a deep sleep. And behold, terror and a great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge that nation they serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. As for you... You shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set, that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between those pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. And from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Some commentators and Bible scholars, not all, but some tell us that this was God the Father, the smoking furnace, and God the Son, which is the flaming torch, passing between these pieces of animals, sacrificed animals, signifying that a covenant was being made and sworn to fulfill and there are other passages in the scriptures that speak of contracts that were made in those ancient, ancient days I think I've said this before in one of my messages the elders of the village would sit down at the gates at the entrance of the village or town and they would sit there as judges sometimes as mediators you know um, those who would be arbiters between parties historians tell us that it was custom for them to pass judgment, to provide justice to their people. And the scripture speaks of contracts made that way in ancient times. <clears throat> they would take off their shoes or they would make those parties who were making a covenant together take their shoes off <clears throat> and they would swear a contract together and they would walk around these shoes, passing between around their shoes swearing an oath to the elders and to each other that they would keep this contract. When God designed the covenant for his people there was no one that he could swear to other than himself. The great Trinity in heaven swore by each other that they would keep this covenant. For men swear verse 16 says for men swear by one greater than themselves. And with them, an oath is given of confirmation that would end the dispute. Okay, the dispute of the arguments are over when an oath of confirmation is given. In contract negotiation, negotiators tell us that when you have two parties that want to come together in agreement, both parties have to leave the agreement happy or satisfied. Okay, party A... Provides A, B, and C, party B provides X, Y, and Z and they have to agree and they come together and they swear to one that is greater. We have what we call in our um, state, I guess, in our nation contract law. That is the greater that we hope will keep us in line with our covenant and that we use as a standard as the greater so that we can swear to one another, contract with one another to keep that contract. The covenant promise to Abraham was initiated by God. God swore an oath with himself because he could swear by no one greater. Thus, we see that God the Father and God the Son contracted together to fulfill this promise. So, what we have here is God the Father, God the Son covenanting one another and then promising to Abraham what were the terms of that contract. Abraham had nothing to do with it. He was just the recipient of that promise. God contracted with himself to fulfill this promise. And so secondly, in this covenant, Yahweh's oath ends all dispute. Verse 17 and 18, Thus God determined determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. There are two unchangeable And indisputable things are brought into this divine contract. Number one, God keeps his own counsel. And God's counsel is unchangeable and irreversible. You see this when you read verses, uh, like in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Where God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God was, who was he talking to? They were talking in the Trinity. Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. God took counsel with himself to make man in his image. Ephesians 1, 11 says this, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things, how? According to to the counsel of his will not our will his will the verse here tells us that god works all things everything according to his own will god takes counsel with himself and the writer of hebrews tells us that this counsel is unchangeable it is unchangeable as he himself is unchangeable <clears throat> I love that Old English word that is used, uh, immutable. It means unalterable. Unalterable. It is a fixed object that cannot be moved. It cannot be turned or changed in any way. This is one of the great characteristics of God himself. It is fixed in God's character, and he is that spirit who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. In his wisdom, his power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. From the shorter catechism, God is unchangeable. James tells us in chapter 1 of his epistle, verse 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variation or shifting of shadow. I love this verse because... There's not the slightest variation or even a shade of shadow turning with a father of lights. James is alluding to the great lights of the sky, the sun and the moon and the stars. As you look at them through the atmosphere, the moon can change colors, can't it? It changes from red to white to half of it you see one time, just a little sliver of it you see sometimes, and sometimes it's gone completely. You don't see it. The great light of the sun, also through our atmosphere and all the other stars as you see them, what are they doing? Twinkling in the sky, our atmosphere changes there, how you see them constantly. There's not even a shadow of diminishing God's brightness. He cannot fluctuate in any way. There's no change. <clears throat> Thus his counsel stands, and as the writer of Hebrews says, in which it is impossible For God to lie. Number one. God keeps his own counsel. That counsel is unchangeable. And secondly. God promises with a confirming oath. The passage says just exactly that. This oath or this. The theological term for oath is decree. As theologians tell us. God's decrees. Are unalterably set. It is fixed. It cannot be moved or broken. God's decrees are is as unchangeable as his divine character is unchangeable. The writer calls it a confirming oath. This is the language of litigation, I guess you could say. God acted as his own arbiter, his own mediator, in litigating this agreement. He acted as the judge of all the visible universe, as well as the invisible universe, that eternal realm, and he decreed an eternal confirming oath, sworn upon his own character and transcendent as Almighty God himself. The one who is without cause and who is the great cause of all things swore an oath. He's the only one who could bridge that gap for us, that great distance that exists between God and his creation, and he confirmed it for all eternity. Amen. Number three, God kept his promise. God kept his promise. We not only see that he designed it and made it and and stooped down to make that. He gave it to Abraham as his promise, but he also kept that promise. Look at verse 15. And so having patiently waited, he, Abraham, obtained the promise. Abraham and Sarah... Waited patiently on the Lord. Abraham definitely had times of doubt, but the word used here for patiently waited is translated long-suffering in other passages and translations. Abraham and Sarah suffered long. You think about their suffering and how long it was. You have to, you can't. Without going through this, Narrative, you can't help but think about it. Abraham waited on God, God's word. Sarah waited on her husband and his word. That is the long suffering that all wives must endure. <laughs> right? Sarah probably in her late 50s or late 40s or 50s after her time of childbearing was over and gone, became Cynical. You remember that in the scriptures when the angels came to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? He said, God's promise is still real. God's going to give you a child. And what was Sarah doing? She was listening in the background and she began to chuckle. Yeah, right. I'm 55 years old now. I'm going to have a baby. She became cynical. Abraham kept telling her, we need to trust God. God. We need to trust his word all the way until he was 100 years old. She was probably in her 80s or 90s. The Lord had them waiting until that day she gave birth to Isaac. That was an amazing thing. She must have been ecstatic. They must have been humbled, though, in fear before such an almighty God in reverence. What are you waiting on? What are you waiting on? Can't imagine them waiting that long. Yahweh kept his covenant promise. Abraham and Sarah became the parents of millions. Father Abraham, as the father of all those who would come to Christ, is the spiritual father of billions. And if the Lord continues to make his church wait for his coming again, again, There could be millions more that come to Christ before the end of the age. Abraham was the father of billions. Yahweh kept his covenant promise. Well, we barely have touched the the surface of this doctrine. There's so much more. And the writer of Hebrews takes great pains to teach us more of this as you read his epistle. But before we close, the writer gives us some practical and blessed comforts, consolations that we can own as we look further into his covenant-keeping and into this covenant-keeping God. Now, I just want to detail a few of them. Look at verse 16. Number one, you see in that little phrase, the end of all dispute, the end of all dispute. As a child of God, there is a huge dispute over your soul in the spiritual realm, Satan, the enemy of our souls, is constantly disputing our salvation. He is called in <clears throat> Revelation chapter 12, the accuser of the brethren." And he is currently now, even as we speak and as we sit here in our service, disputing over our souls. Revelation 12:10 gives us what I always thought was a prophecy that would happen at the end of the age. But as I've come more and more to the reformed positions of eschatology, the right positions, by the way, Jesus has fulfilled all of this on his cross. And it says this about the accuser. Verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven. I love that, a loud voice. God wasn't just having a conversation here. He was blasting out with a loud voice what he's about to say here. Almost shouting out, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before God day and night. God's confirming oath, his decree and covenant with himself to set apart a people for himself is the end of all disputes. In keeping his covenant through Jesus Christ, God has thrown down the accuser of the brethren. And in this verse, following Revelation chapter 12, in verse 11, it reads this, And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. Don't listen to those accusations against your soul that are railed against you in your thinking, even your own subtle thoughts and doubts that are conjured up in your own mind. You're not good enough. Your prayers are just not sincere enough. Your sin is too great. All of these accusations are true, probably many more. You never will be good enough. You never will pray As you'd like to pray. You never will have a good enough prayer. You'll never. uh, Your sin is far too great to overcome. But there is that one man. Who through his obedience. Many were made righteous. Many were made righteous. Jesus Christ our Lord. Lived a perfect life. Fulfilled the law completely on our behalf. In this covenant, Jesus took our sin upon himself and has given us his robes of righteousness. You have the promise of God, the covenant of God, and it's confirmed with his oath in Jesus Christ our Lord. This covenant was made because God knew we could never cross such a huge gap between us and the creator. God himself had to do it. This is a huge comfort. And a powerful consolation. Especially after hearing the sermons the last few weeks about our society and our culture. This is a blessed consolation. Number two, right in the middle of verse 18 again, there's this phrase. We might have strong consolation. The fact that the triune God keeps his own counsel and is unchangeable and his oath is unchangeable and is fixed as his decree are both a strong and reliable comforts. All is satisfied. There is peace with God. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. No legal fears do we have placed against us. Christ has met them all. Yep, there, there's wounds, there's scars that bear upon our hearts from the battle we are waging against our flesh against this world, against the devil. There are a lot of battle scars, but we have powerful consolation. Jesus Christ was wounded for us. There is an argument for studying God's Word. Not just our daily reading of Scripture, but a purposeful meditation on the Scriptures, phrases, words so that the meaning of the passage comes to you with comforting grace and spiritual strength just reading through the bible every year is not enough you need to study god's word out learn about his covenant learn about him pastors and elders must study the word we're commanded if we're to be to be obedient to the scriptures to tell us to feed the flock of god fathers husbands You are the elder in your home. You must be feeding your little flock. You must be fed yourself. If you are to feed your household, you must feed upon the word of God. There's another little phrase in verse 18, and it gives us practical comfort. Look at the phrase, we who have taken refuge. Here is the testimony of every child of God. Every blood-bought saint has fled to Christ for refuge. The great distance for which God initiated this covenant to bridge was there because our sin separated us from him. And he drove us out of the garden. And he drove us away from himself. And so we have broken fellowship with God. We are removed from him. And our sin drives us far away from him. That's why... He made this covenant to bring us back into his family through adoption. He uses the word adoption to those who have fled to Christ for refuge. Christ is our refuge. Christ is our fortress we run to. These truths found in this passage are refuge to flee to. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. That hope that is set before us, I don't know about you, but I, I need hope. I need hope. Not just an emotional urge for something better, but a solid rock that assures the soul that I have peace with God now, and God has peace with me. I am in Christ. What is your soul anchored to? Verse 19 says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. Is your soul anchored down? Are you anchored to Christ? He's the bedrock of this great covenant. Remember the old hymn or the old song, spiritual song? We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure While the billows roll, fastened to a rock which cannot move, grounded, firm, and deep in the Savior's love. We have an anchor. Jesus Christ is the anchor of the soul. And lastly, verse 19, and one which enters within the veil. Do You remember the great curtain that kept the Israelites from entering into the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant that was in there? God made a covenant with Moses and with Israel, but they could not enter into God's presence. Only the high priest could enter in once a year behind that veil. Thousands of years of sacrifice and ritual was the lot of God's people until that promised final and single Sacrifice could be made. The writer of Hebrews goes on throughout all of his his epistle, all of God's covenant, and point by point explains how that the Old Testament covenant was a picture of Messiah who would come and is now the better promise, the better priest, the better sacrifice, and the better covenant. We can go behind the veil with Christ. We can enter in to the Father's presence. That's amazing. I don't know if that throws you once in a while. (laughs) It throws me once in a while to my knees that we have that ability to come into the presence of God. Let me say this in closing. All of this truth is sealed to us by the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus. If you are not now trusting in Jesus Christ to bridge that gap between you and the Almighty, then none of this truth applies to you. None of it. You need to come to Christ in repentance and acknowledge your sin before a holy God. And I hope you will do that today. Christian, Paul tells us in his letter to the Ephesians, in verse chapter one, verses three through six, and I'll read this in closing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy. And without blame before him in love, having predestinated us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. What a blessed covenant keeping God. Let's pray. Our Father, we're humbled by your word. We're humbled by the truth of our covenant-keeping God. And Father, we have to just stop and, and praise you and thank you and glorify your name, Father, as a people, as a congregation. Lord, we thank you for saving us and keeping us. Thank you, Lord, that you reach down to us in mercy. That, Father, even though we thought in our own stubborn wills that we could run to you and find you, Lord, we know that usually it ends up with gigantic temples and altars and icons and all kinds of other stuff that mean nothing to you, for you are not worshiped with men's hands lord we thank you that you've given us christ and that in christ we are brought into that family the family of god and we are accepted in the beloved lord it's because of your great covenant with us and we thank you for that lord drive this truth deep into our hearts we pray in jesus name amen